So we'll, we'll, we'll watch some football later, but it's not, not, not the same, not the same. Well, if you were here last week, you know that we uh, started a two-week mini teaching series that's kind of laying the foundation for some of the things we're going to talk about really throughout the course of uh, this coming uh, year, 2024. Uh, the series was titled Evangelical Citizens, Evangelical Citizens. And uh, we made sure we defined the word evangelical, because as you probably know, that word uh, in our culture today largely refers to uh, a, a cultural grouping, a political grouping, and we're not referring to that word in that way. And so we actually defined four things that historically that word has meant. Anybody remember any of those four aspects that uh, historically evangelical meant? Scriptural authority. Well, all right, Mike. Scriptural authority. That was one of them. Scriptural authority. That's right. Activism was sharing the gospel. Centered on the cross, man, you guys are killing us. All right, and there was and there was one more conversion. Man, look at this. Wow, all four. Well done. All right. So those four things theologically have defined what it means to be an evangelical. That's how we are defining it here in our church as well. We want to be people who are are defining who we are based on the scriptures, based on Christ and His kingdom, and then the question is, how do we? Uh, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, engage in the kingdoms of this world. So last week, I, I put a graphic up here, and it, Mike, you can throw it up here, yeah. Uh, we kind of talked about um, the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and how Christ rules over all, but right now he has allowed kingdoms of this earth to resist his rule. And so for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we actually live in both. We are both a citizen in earthly kingdoms, but our primary identity is a citizen in the kingdom of God. So we live in the overlap. Citizens of kingdoms of this world, primarily though, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So last week we grounded our identity in that heavenly reality. That's where that verse comes from, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Um, the question for us this week is how do we as citizens of heaven engage in the politics of kingdoms of this world. Nothing controversial at all in this talk, all right? If you have any questions, concerns, or problems, feel free to email Bjorn. He be, <laughs> all right? Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> all right, so, um, Let's dig in here a little bit. I want to introduce this, then we're going to go to the scriptures, then pray. But just to introduce this, as you well know, um, this can be a, a tense topic. When we begin to talk about um, the intersection of faith and politics, man, can this get tense. Um, every election cycle, this seems to really crop up. And the last couple have been very tough within evangelical churches. There's been a lot of tension, a lot of division. Now, I'm going to make a couple broad brush statements, all right? Very big qualifier here. And when I make these broad brush statements, try not to think about individuals, no pointing around the room, all right? Don't think individuals, think like ideas, an ideological continuum. Um, and I want to kind of explain, when we're, when we're thinking about those two circles overlap, why this kind of gets tense. Now, broad brush statement. On the continuum of ideas, those that those that are Christians who lean more in a conservative direction, have historically focused 
on the kingdom in the future. All right, that's historically been the case. They really emphasized the need to get people um, uh, to know Jesus Christ, so they're prepared to go to heaven after they die. That is a right and good and necessary aspect of Christian ministry. Now, there's dangers, though, if you are way far on that side of the continuum. Um, the danger is you can sometimes miss out on the presence of the kingdom here and now. If the kingdom is only future, then we don't expect much of the values of the kingdom to be present here and now. And there's been so many examples of this. One particularly troubling one was actually from one of the most wonderful evangelicals we've had of the past century, uh, Billy Graham. But after, Billy Gra after uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, this was Billy's uh, response. He said, only when Christ comes again will the little white children of Alabama walk hand in hand with little black children. And we think, oh my word, how can that be? How can someone not want to see the values of the kingdom present here and now? Now, I have deep respect for Billy Graham. I actually, in December, I went down and visited the Billy Graham uh, Memorial Library in Charlotte. It was amazing seeing the story of this man's faith and all that he's done for the cause of Christ. But no one is perfect. So we don't say this to discredit or to cancel Billy Graham. Far from it. Um, God writes straight lines using crooked sticks. Um, it's to say, if, if your ideology is primarily future-focused, you're going to miss opportunities for the kingdom to break into the present. And God wants to break into the present with his kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. Now, on the other side of the ideological continuum, those Christians who lean more in a progressive direction have historically focused on the kingdom in the present and not so much on the kingdom in the future, the, the social implications of the gospel. And the danger here is an overestimation of how the kingdom can be brought about in the present through human means. Uh, there's a pastor and an author named Mark Sayers from Australia. He's a great at like, so, uh, cultural analysis. And he writes this about the extreme of this ideology. He says, progressive Christianity, at the extreme, uh, is the kingdom without the king, wanting the implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God, and wanting society to conform to our standards of moral purity without God's standard of personal holiness. Now, every time an election cycle rolls around, we have the collision of these two ideologies in the church. People who are more focused on kingdom future or more focused on kingdom present. And it does get tense. Because the question is, what role should earthly governments play in efforts for things like racial reconciliation, addressing poverty, education reform? And there's different perspectives on that, right? So, here's why we come again and again to the scriptures. We need God's wisdom. We need God's perspective. We need to regularly recalibrate ourselves to what the scriptures say is true so we're not letting any worldly ideology become our dominant lens through which we see the world. So, with that said, let's look to the scriptures this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to read two scriptures this morning. Philippians 3, verses 20 uh, through 4, verse 1, and then 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. First, Philippians 3. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word that leads us into truth. And I pray this morning that the written word would lead us to the living word, Jesus. And Jesus, that you would give us uh, eyes to truly see uh, life um, you're from your perspective. Uh, God, I pray this morning that as I teach, God, I pray that you would give uh, me wisdom. I pray that only words that are from you would, uh, would remain. Um, Lord, what is not, I pray, would fall away. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be honored and you'd use this time to more fully conform us to your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. All right, we've got some work to do today here. And uh, the main question we're asking is, how are citizens of heaven to represent the king in the kingdoms of the world? How are citizens of heaven to represent the king in the kingdoms of the world? Um, I want to talk about three main uh, points today. First one, Know your primary identity. Know your primary identity. This is a reminder from last week. I'm not going to take long on it, but it's foundational. Um, you'll see again and again and again in Scripture. Um, the authors almost always start with our identity in the kingdom of God because what we do flows from who we are. And if our identity isn't grounded in God's kingdom, um, then we're simply trying through self-effort to do what Scripture says. But if our identity is grounded in Christ, um, things flow more naturally. And so we start by grounding our identity in what the scriptures tell us. Paul did, or Peter did this in the passage in 1 Peter, where he started in verse 11 of chapter 2 by saying, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So he's writing to uh, citizens of the Roman Empire, Christians who are living scattered abroad uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And he writes to them and says, you, Though you are Roman citizens, I'm writing to you as a sojourner, a traveler, and as an exile. Because he's grounding their citizenship in another kingdom. They're, they're sojourners and exiles in the kingdoms of this world because their primary citizenship is in heaven. And so he begins by grounding their identity there. So, quick reminder, just remember who we are. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're going to know our identity if we're going to engage well in the kingdoms of this world representing the king. Now, let's dig into the meat of today. Uh, secondly, 
we need to understand the authority that God has given to earthly governments and the authority that God has given to the church. I think an awful lot of the tension we run into every election cycle comes from um, not understanding this principle well. And so we're going to spend some time here. What is the role of earthly governments and what is the role of the church in the overlap of the ages? In this time where Jesus has come, so the kingdom is present but not yet here fully, what is the role of earthly governments? What is the role of the church during the overlap? Uh, let's begin here with uh, the role of earthly governments in this age. Um, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 14, he said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. See, Peter says that human governments, earthly governments, are ultimately sent by God. Now, that may be tough for us to get our minds around when we look at the world and see the corruption, the wickedness, see all that is taking place in earthly governments. How can that be the case that God is sending the governments and their leaders um, when we see so much brokenness? Well, ultimately, what we're saying here is their authority is derived from God. It's not that everything they do is sanctioned by God, but the ultimate authority comes from God. Uh, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, where Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now listen, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus recognized the same thing when he stood before Pilate, before his crucifixion. You know, Pilate said, don't you know that I have authority you know, to either release you or crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no authority over me except that it was given from above. So Christians must start with this framework, that all human earthly governing authority ultimately derives its authority from God. It's not as though God only rules over heaven, God does rule over earth. He's the one who is uh, behind all human authority. Whether or not they use that authority well is a question. But ultimately, all authority comes from God. So Christians start there. We recognize that ultimately, um, God is over all. Now, God has put earthly governments in place for a purpose. The question is, what is the purpose? Uh, let me... Um, Start with, uh, I have a couple kind of statements today I want us to dig into. The first statement is about the purpose of earthly governments. That earthly governments have authority from God for this purpose to enact a protectionist form of justice by restraining evil and promoting good. This is God's purpose, okay? Not that governments always live this out well, they usually don't. But God's purpose is that earthly governments would enact a protectionist form of justice. Um, in Scripture, this is actually referred to as the sword. Um, that we'll get to a passage in a minute from Romans 13 that's, uh, that where this is drawn from. But in 1 Peter 2, verse 14, we saw that Peter said that God put these governments in place to punish those who do evil. Um, if there was not structures in place to restrain the evil of people, 
uh, we'd have anarchy. There would be chaos. Uh, we need systems in place to protect. See, God has made all human beings in his image. He values all human beings, all human life. And so he wants human life to be valued. We, if you go way back in scripture, you see that God says to Noah that anyone that takes the life of a human being, from him his life will be required. That, that God is actually putting in place a system of restraining evil in the world. That's a good thing. We want life to be protected. And so human, uh, earthly governments have a protectionist form of government. One aspect is restraining evil. Uh, that Romans 13 passage, Romans 13, 4, Paul said, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. That God has given essentially the sword to earthly governments to protect, to protect. But there's another side of this justice, this protectionist justice, and that is promoting goodness. Uh, Peter said in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, that they punish evil and praise those who do good. Praise those who do good. That earthly governments are to uh, promote the flourishing of goodness. Um, this is why governments should, should try to foster uh, good education in a society. It causes goodness to flourish, business to operate well, there to be fair housing. This is about the promoting of goodness. Now, this is not a perfect form of justice. Punishing evil and promoting goodness, it's a protective form of justice. It's putting structures in place that keep people from going to the worst. Um, it doesn't make us truly just people. It doesn't make us truly righteous, but it, it protects. So the purpose of government is to put a protectionist form of justice in place so that the church can do its job. In God's economy, this is how things are supposed to work. The government should keep people alive so they can hear the gospel. It should establish roads so people can drive to churches. There should be fair housing so there can be hospitality in people's homes. But what happens in all those places, then comes the role of the church. So what is the role of the church during the overlap of the ages? Uh, the second statement here. The church has authority from God to enact a perfectionist form of justice by proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. You see, if there's going to be perfect justice, we have to be just people. And we can't be just people unless we are justified by the just person. So only through the ministry of the church can people be brought into the kingdom of God. And only in the kingdom of God can we be made just. This is the perfect kind of justice. It involves the transformation of the human soul. So a protectionist form of justice is necessary to keep things in order so that the perfect, the perfect kind of justice can take place through the ministry of the church. Um, Matthew chapter 16 uh, verses 18 to 19, Jesus is talking to Peter. Famous statement. And Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Think again of that graphic of the overlap of the circles. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, I am entrusting the church with the keys to the kingdom. Anyone right now living in the kingdoms of this world can enter the kingdom of heaven, but only through one way. Only through one way. It is through Jesus Christ and his message. The keys to the kingdom of heaven are the, is the gospel. And so the church stewards the what and the who of the kingdom. The church stewards what is the gospel. And throughout the ages, the scriptures have been written to, to clearly articulate for us what this gospel is. And many people seek to change it. But the church stewards that message. What is the gospel? This is why we have things like statements of faith, um, doctrinal classes. We are defining the what of the kingdom. And then it's the who of the kingdom. Um, when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they become a member of the church. Um, being part of the church community is a visible demonstration of those who are actually in the kingdom of heaven. The church is the, the what and the who of the kingdom. That's the keys. God's given the sword to earthly governments. He's given the keys to the church. And this is why Peter writes to Christians in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He's connecting this idea of freedom with heavenly citizenship. Now, this instruction here is a little bit of a mind-bender for us in our society today, because just a verse or two prior, he had, told the, he had told them, be subject to the emperor. Now, live as people who are free. See, our modern definitions of freedom do not fit the biblical definition. Whenever we hear the word freedom, today in our culture, we think freedom from. Freedom from. If there's an authority figure over us, we think I'm not free. If someone is constraining what I want to do, I can't be free. Freedom is when no one tells me what to do, when I decide what to do. That's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is freedom for. It's freedom to live the way we were intended to live. We were intended to live in the ways of Jesus Christ. And those that are brought into the kingdom of God have now been freed. Freed from the condemnation of sin, freed from the power of sin. We can live differently. So we can actually live subject to earthly governments, free in the kingdom of God. So Peter is instructing people who are Christians to use the keys in your own life and in the life of others to live in the kingdom of God, as God intends. Now we often get stuck in worldly arguments about freedom from. And we need to change the discussion to freedom for. What are we called to do with the freedom God has given to us? How is Jesus enabling us to live? You know, one of the verses that's long been uh, kind of a, a key verse for our church is if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's real freedom. Freedom in Christ to live like Christ. Uh, lastly in this section here, now that we've kind of defined earthly government's purpose and church's purpose, we need to be very careful not to confuse or to conflate the two. Do not confuse or conflate the authority and responsibility of earthly governments and the authority and responsibility of the church. And here's what I mean. The government 
doesn't have the keys. Uh, God did not entrust the keys to any earthly government. We don't want the government defining the what and the who of the kingdom. And when you look at history, that's happened. There are many times in history where the government has all of a sudden started to take a role in what the gospel is, what the Bible teaches, what's actually right and wrong. And we don't want earthly governments in that position. God has not entrusted that kind of authority to them. They don't define who, the what and the who of the gospel. They don't define how the church worships. So there have been times throughout history when the church must say, that's not your role. That's not your role. We also do not want the church to have the sword. And there have been plenty of times throughout history when the church has attempted to wield the sword. We think about Peter, who when Jesus was arrested, Peter picks up the sword and hacks off the ear of the, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus says, enough, put it away. We're always tempted to resort to power to advance kingdom uh, purposes. We saw that in the Crusades, where the church attempted to convert at sword point people into the kingdom. It doesn't work. That's not how God made uh, the entrance to the kingdom to work. And it can still happen in our democratic society today. Uh, we can seek to use power to accomplish kingdom means, and God has not worked in this manner to cause entrance to the kingdom. Um, because of this impulse, um, for, uh, particularly I'm thinking to the church now, for the church to want to pick up the sword, our denomination actually had to write some statements about where do we stand on these issues, on the relationship of church and state? Well, what do we believe uh, should be the relationship? So here's two statements that our denomination um, wrote about this very point. Firstly, they said, we do not believe that political means can establish the kingdom of God. But we do believe that God has appointed governing authorities to do good. And that for citizens in Christ's kingdom, King Jesus' rule and reign transcends all other citizenships and partisan ideologies and transforms how we live in the world. Second statement, we are not Christian nationalists who believe the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation or believe that Americans are God's chosen people. But we do believe that a patriotic love of one's nation is appropriate and that Christians should be good citizens who may freely advocate for God-honoring public policies. Those are two statements trying to articulate these principles of the government having being entrusted by God with the sword and the church being entrusted with the keys. Now, to summarize this whole point here, I'm going to quote author Jonathan Lehman, who spoke at our um, annual conference of the Evangelical Free Church in New England. And a lot of this has come from his teaching. He said this, To summarize, the relationship between church and state, in a sentence, we could say God has given the power of the sword to governments and the power of keys to the church. He intends for them to work separately but cooperatively toward the greater end of worship. Both fail often and miserably in their jobs. Yet we need to first understand the blueprint in order to better identify departures from it. Now, I know this was heavy lifting, kind of giving into the, the nitty-gritty of where uh, authority lies and what re where the responsibilities lie, but it's important we have that framework so we have proper expectations. But now that we have those expectations, I want us to dig in how we live this out individually. 
how, how does God want us to live as individual followers of Jesus in the kingdoms of this world? How are citizens of heaven to represent the king? And there's one clear principle from this passage in 1 Peter, and that is to prioritize our witness. We need to prioritize our witness to the king and his kingdom in how we engage earthly politics. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, here's what Peter said to Christians scattered abroad the Roman Empire. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, keep your conduct honorable. And just think about the context of this statement. I mean, in the Roman Empire, we're not talking about a government that's uh, um, uh, helping Christianity flourish. Persecution has just begun in the church. Uh, yet it was not yet what it would be, but they have begun to experience persecution. And, and you don't see Peter writing, saying, hey, we need to res resist this. He says, in light of this, keep your conduct honorable. I mean, how much has been justified in our culture under the phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures? And our culture has not seen anything like this yet. And yet, the call is to keep your conduct honorable. So I am going to very quickly list off a number of ways Peter calls us to keep our conduct honorable. I see the time is ticking away quickly. I'm mindful of it, but I'm pressing on, all right? I'll do my best here. How can we keep our conduct honorable? First of all, don't freak out when labeled as an evildoer. Don't freak out if you're labeled as an evildoer because that's exactly what Peter says will happen. He says specifically in, uh, let's see, verse uh, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, there are many convictions that we have as followers of Christ today in 2024 that are decidedly at odds with the value system of our world. Now, it used to be in the history of America that to be a Christian actually gained you social capital. It helped you in business to be considered a good person, part of a religious institution. That's no longer the case. For a while, uh, the last couple decades, uh, to be part of a church was considered weird, um, but not necessarily bad, kind of a neutral idea. But today, it is no longer neutral. Today, to be a follower of Christ actually is considered to be on the wrong side of a number of uh, key things. And so we take our stance on sexuality or our view on the sanctity of life. And actually, Christians are being labeled as evildoers because of those stances. And Peter would say, don't freak out. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted. In the history of the world, this has been the case for most Christians, that we are in the minority in worldly kingdoms. He says, don't freak out when labeled as an evildoer. Don't try to fight back with your words. He said, instead, secondly, let your good deeds be the answer to others' bad words. Let your good deeds be the answer to others' bad words. Peter said, let others see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. That when labeled as an evildoer, we don't need to then advocate to be seen as a good person. We need to live as a good person. 
to continue to care for people who are hurting, to continue to engage our neighbors, no matter who they are. Um, the best way to answer the charge that we are evil is actually to live good, to let our goodness be shown through our individual lives, through our church programs, doing good in the world. Thirdly, we need to engage wisely and winsomely in politics. Peter said in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That they had an emperor. They didn't have a democracy. We do. So we need to engage wisely and winsomely in this system that God has placed us in. And to engage wisely and winsomely, I think we need to engage policies primarily, not parties primarily. And we're kind of locked into this party system in our country that ends up becoming more of a, a, a popularity contest than a real political understanding. So as Christians, we should think about what policies are God honoring? Um, right now, uh, neither party in our country perfectly represents biblical values. There are aspects of both parties that more fully point to certain values. I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter. Um, clearly, we need to really dig in and understand what values are and how we then vote based on them. My point is, we should be more known by the policies that we want to advance than the parties we are under. Um, when we stand around the throne in heaven, we're not going to be wearing the color of a certain political party. We'll be wearing uh, the robes given to us by Christ. And many different worldly kingdoms will be around that throne. And God's values will reign over all. So here and now, we begin to advocate the values that are eternal. Um, I wish I had more time, because I really would love to dive into this point about what are, some of those values are, but I don't. Um, lastly, I'll say this. Peter said, fear God and honor everyone. Fear God and honor everyone. He didn't say fear the emperor. He said fear God. Only God is the one who we'll, we will stand before someday. There are times we must resist governing authorities due to our allegiance to Christ. There are times we submit to governing authorities due to our allegiance to Christ. Our fear is to him. And then our honor is for everyone, including, he said, the emperor. And so in this election cycle, how can we honor everyone? How can we honor the candidate we can't stand and do not want to see in place of power? How can we honor those that vote for the candidate we can't stand? We're called to honor everyone. Well, what if Christians really were people of honor? In our words, in our deeds, we demonstrated this, this value system of the kingdom. Jesus, who like a lamb, was silent before his accuser, um, honoring those that were even crucifying him. That's how we're called to live as representatives of the king in the kingdoms of this world. In closing, we have an election taking place this week. Maybe you didn't know that yet. Um, I'm actually traveling this week, and so I, uh, I voted last week my, already. I'm not telling you who I voted for, all right? We have an opportunity as citizens of heaven to represent the king this week. Remember your primary identity. Understand the authority God has given to government and vote for people and policies that you believe in your conscience will do the best job protecting life and promoting goodness. Understand the authority God has given the church. Perfect justice can only come from God's kingdom. And entrance into God's kingdom is only through Jesus Christ. Share that message. 
And lastly, prioritize your witness. You are an ambassador. You represent the king who died, who rose, who now reigns, and who is coming again. So keep your conduct honorable that others may see your good deeds and glorify God. If not now, then they will when he returns. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so thankful that in the midst of all of the upheaval of the political systems around us, Psalm 2 talks about the nations raging, we see that. 